This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to mclanahanacademy.com, enroll today, and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 709. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. Great way to support the show because you can purchase one or 20 classes there. You get great content and you keep this podcast free of charge. And if you're listening to this this week... I've got a new class out, and it's a new type of McClanahan Academy. It's McClanahan Academy Live. So you want to get on that. It's awesome because you're going to get me live for some of the class. So go on out to McClanahan Academy. Get that McClanahan Academy Live. I mentioned that I was going to be releasing the Jefferson Davis class. That's still coming. That'll be out probably the end of October. But right now, you want to get on McClanahan Academy Live. You're on the ground floor. You get the first class it's really, really good, and you're really going to want it. So head over to McClanahan Academy, get that free class, and enroll in the newest course, in the newest type of course at McClanahan Academy. It's the causes of the Civil War. And again, if, if you took my war class there, this is completely different. It's a different kind of class, and it is live. At least some of the class is live. So get in on that. It's going to be amazing. A deep dive into the causes of the war. Now, you can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com, clicking on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way, or you can go to anchor.fm and subscribe there. Another great way to support the show. Also, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the, on the shop tab, and you can do that. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you like it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a review wherever you can. Comment on YouTube. Click on the little super thanks button under the YouTube video if you're watching there. It's a great way to support the show financially. I appreciate all your support, and send me those show requests. I do want to know what you want to hear. All right, well, let's talk about the... We're going to lead off this week with a something that I find interesting about modern American conservatives, and it goes back to the death of the Queen. So, of course, last week we had the, uh, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. It was all over the news, and there were some pretty amazing things about it. First of all, let me say this about the Queen. She was, I think, the embodiment of what it meant to be a sovereign, a, a monarch, and her, um, the way that she conducted her life and uh, her personal life, of course, and also the way she conducted a head of state, which essentially is what she was, at least a symbolic head of state. There was no finer example of the magnanimous monarch than Queen Elizabeth II. And I think that's led a lot of Americans to think that a monarchy might be preferable to what we have now. 
And there's a piece out that was published on September 20th. Uh, the title is, With Ceremonies Over, King Charles III Faces Biggest Task. And it's about the modernization of the monarch and how the monarch relates to the 21st century. Look, this monarch has been around since 1066. It's over a thousand years old. And that is something that's very impressive. And you saw all the pomp and circumstance, the pageantry, everything that went into this ceremony, the importance of the Church of England, all of that, the, tr the tradition, right? These are things that conservatives are naturally drawn to, the tradition behind all of it, because conservatism is, as an ism, right, tied into tradition. I, I would say that conservative, con being conservative can never be an ism. You admire tradition for the things that tradition brings. And so I've noticed over the last decade, and I'll start with, with a story. In 2009, I've noticed over the last decade people are more interested in in America, in monarchy. I mean, in 2009, when I published the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers, I had an email from uh, someone. He, he asked a question about the founding generation. I responded, and he said, well, um, this is the problem. I'm a monarchist, right? So I think that you're entirely wrong about the founding generation, that they were wrong about everything because I'm a monarchist. And that always stuck with me. It wasn't a, a, a heated exchange. It was just that a question and then a response of this person saying that they're a monarchist. And you're starting to see a lot more of this among American conservatives. And this is also true with things like conservative nationalism. The problem I have with all of these things is that they're completely un-American. Uh, sorry, Christian nationalism, I should say, but also conservative nationalism, this, this push for nationalism. They're completely un-American. The Christian nationalists the conservative nationalists, the monarchists, all of this is very European. Now, of course, there's a lot to admire about European conservatives. No question. I mean, again, the tradition that stretches back thousands of years is very important. Right? The, the beauty of uh, old Europe is impressive. But we have to remember that the United States, and America in general, was anti-monarchy. And it was also, also anti-nationalism. And I mean that sincerely. When you start talking about Christian nationalism or American nationalism, you're distorting the entire founding period. Now, I know people, well, what, what about Washington? What about Hamilton? What about all these nationalists? They were in the minority, and they were in the vast minority, actually. And I, I think that's we have to understand that. Most Americans were not interested in an American nation. In fact, it was explicitly rejected at Philadelphia. It was also explicitly rejected during the ratification conventions. Americans were not interested in a nation because a nation did not exist. As John Taylor, a conservative from Virginia, said, look, an American nation or American people is like utopia for utopians. It doesn't exist. It never has existed. The United States is a federal republic. And it's a, it's a federal republic, the opposite of a national government. We don't have that. Now, you can say the House of Representatives represents a national body in that it's done by congressional districts, but within states. And the states still control these congressional districts. So it it's national sort of, but in reality, it's still part of a federal republic. That was the only way we were going to have a central government in the United States. To say the United States or that there is an American nation would be like saying there's a European nation. We know that doesn't exist. 
And you can say, well, yeah, but we all have the same language, the same customs. We don't. We know. If you read David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed, we know even there we had different cultures in America. We had different types of people spreading throughout the American colonies, and there were vastly different cultures in these colonies between North and South, Mid-Atlantic. All of that was important. These cultural differences were recognized by the founding generation. So for those that want to push an American nation, you're completely off base. There is nothing in the founding period that reflects an American nation. And today, you're actually sowing the seeds for your own demise. Because what we have in the United States, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is a left of center, or maybe even moving further left of center, American polity. Conservatives should be interested in decentralization, not centralization, because the only thing that will result from extreme centralization in the United States is your continued plunder and defeat. What we're more likely to get in an American monarchy would be a fascist dictatorship on the left. Where is the, where is the hereditary aristocracy? That's all gone. And you can say, well, we had it, you know, but that, that disappeared a long time ago. We don't have this anymore. We do have an American king, an elected one. And I'm going to talk about this this week and the delegitimization of the American presidency and what we're seeing now, right? Where the president doesn't even get to say what he believes because the administration, the state, will walk it back. And we'll talk about this and how Trump has been a part of that. How we're seeing, what we're seeing now is the president becoming a mere figurehead in a lot of ways. And a bad one at that. But we have an elected monarchy. And you have to remember George Mason of Virginia stood up and said, what we're going to get is an, elect is an elected monarchy, which is the worst kind of monarchy. We would never have an hereditary monarchy. We don't have an hereditary class in America. We don't have anything, that, an aristocracy. We don't have anything like that in the United States that would produce the climate where we could have a monarchy. So Americans that run around saying we need a monarchy, are they're lost. They're lost. What we really need is a decentralized central authority, something that's so small that it's barely even recognizable. It doesn't even interfere in your daily lives. That's what we really need because that's the only thing that's going to help preserve these regional identities, these regional cultures, and yes, conservatism in America because you could still have it in many states. You can't have it in every state. But you can still have it in many states. And if you don't like the state you live in, you can leave and go to a different state in this federal republic, in this union. Again, I go back to Calhoun. He said he was a conservative, and because he was conservative, he was a states' rights man. Because that was the only way to preserve conservatism in a republican form of government. Even Britain is facing massive shifts because of uh, the social economic structure of Britain now. Charles III is going to be, I think, in some ways, the last of the old monarchs in Britain. I think William will be different. And I think Charles III is even shading towards a different. And that's what this, this piece is about. It's by Danica Kirka. And it talks about the multinational empire that's become the British Empire. Now, again... The empire is the British Empire is different than the United States. It is an unabashed empire with a strong central authority. It always was with a monarchy. It's not the United States, which was not designed to be an empire. It was not designed to be a centralized state. It was not designed to be any of that. It was always designed to be decentralized. 
It was always designed to have a limited central authority. If we didn't have an American king, this was rejected. Again, explicitly rejected. We weren't going to have that. The founding generation was entirely against it. They they bristled. They they would look at what's happening. For example, we just had a a ceremony recognizing the death of Queen Elizabeth II in Washington, D.C. They would be spinning in their graves over this. Why would you do that? She's not our sovereign. She's not our monarch. Yeah, it's it's uh, she was a great queen and a great ally, and of course, uh, you know, someone that uh, was uh, again the the epitome. If you want to talk about the ideal monarch in the modern era, she was it. No question about that. But to have a ceremony mourning the loss of the queen in the United States—Are you serious? And yet we're going to tear down Confederate monuments who are truly Americans, and those people are horrible, but yet the queen is great? Come on. This is ridiculous. This is where we are, right? Because she is this this image of... I mean, left-wingers love her too because she's this image of everything. She's somebody. She's something to everybody. So the piece says, the cannons have sounded, the bells have rung, and the mourners have paid their respects. Now King Charles III faces the task of preserving a 1,000-year-old monarchy that his mother nurtured for seven decades, but that faces an uncertain future. The challenge is immense. And so here, there's been discussion about, you know, you have all these protests, not my king, and you have some despicable characters in the monarchy. This is what happens when you get hereditary monarchy. Even Charles himself is a little baby at times. He's a little spoiled brat. You look at what people say. Now, he has nice things to say about architecture and and uh, small farms and things like that. There's no doubt Charles has some nice things to say about a few things. But from, from all the reports about Charles, he's not a really upstanding guy, and his brother is despicable, right? So you have these these things to say about Charles and the monarchy, and is he would he even be elected? Right? Would Charles even be someone that people would elect or even care about had he not been the son of QE2? I mean, this is the this is the major question. Probably not. You know, he's he meddled too much in government when he was Prince Charles, and uh, and but on the other hand, the fact that he can't do that now is a nice endorsement of a limited constitutional monarchy. But who would be that in America? Would it? I mean, George Washington had no heirs, so would it have been uh, his wife's children? I mean, would that have been the monarchy then? Would we still have those people? Well, then you would have had the leaves, right? That would have been American monarchy. You would have had that. So, I mean, this is the real question: Would that? Would we have this? Okay, would we even? Can we even have this in America? And of course, the answer is no. You can admire the tradition in it. You can admire the continuity. But to have it here in America is, is impossible. And shouldn't even be discussed as something that would be even possible, definitely not probable, but even something that would be possible here. It's It can't. And you go back and you look at the conservatives in America, the really important ones in the 19th century, and they would be completely against it. Personal affection for the Queen meant that the monarchy's role in British society was rarely debated in recent years. But now that she's gone, the royal family faces questions about whether it's still relevant in a modern, multicultural nation that looks very different than it did when Elizabeth ascended to the throne in 1952. So think about what they just said there. It's a multinational, multicultural nation. 
You can't have a multicultural nation. Impossible. It's an oxymoron. A multicultural nation does not exist. You can have a multicultural something, you know, multicultural union, but not a nation. It's an oxymoron. We, we don't even understand these terms anymore. The language means something. We, we don't have a national government in America. We don't have an American nation. We don't have any of that. And so, again, for people running around talking about American nationalism, they really don't understand America. They don't understand what it was. They don't understand what it is. They don't understand what the founding generation said about it. It's why we developed a federal republic, to absorb these differences. Amid a global re-examination of the history of colonialism and slavery that's seen protesters tear down or deface statues in British cities and universities like Oxford and Cambridge, change their course offerings, an institution that was once the symbol of the British Empire is likely to face renewed scrutiny. Now, uh, what I'll say about that, I love the, if you, if you haven't seen this video, you have to see it. It's um, the video of the Brit who went on to a major news show and was asked about reparations, and she just let, let it loose. Okay, if we're going to talk about reparations, sure, let's talk about that. I think we need to talk about reparations for uh, slavery, and who's going to be paying them? Well, certainly not the British Empire, because we had, we had thousands of sailors die trying to stop the slave trade while we had uh, African nations leaving uh, slaves in cages on the beach. And Europeans just pick them up. So who's really got to pay reparations? Well, the African nations that enslave their own people. And uh, 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 nothing to say from that. I mean, it was glorious. Glorious. Because this is true. Right? This is all true. And so th th this uh, this leftist slant of reparations and all these things, it's, it's, it's historically inaccurate. And it's it's all about power. Right? What kind of power can you have over people now? That's what it's really about. And this is this is the way forward. If you want to talk about these things, just point it right back at them. Okay, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the African nations that should be involved in reparations that aren't even being discussed in this. Uh, you know, and, and how do we de how do we determine the United States? We had African slaveholders. Uh, we know there were, well, there were there were thousands of them, right? So, um, how do we determine that? Um, are these people then, uh, do they not get reparations? Who does get reparations? What about, what about uh, indentured servants in America? These kind of things. So, I mean, this is all just a joke of a discussion. But it's something that the left likes to pin down because they think they can use it to gain more power. Trials will try to maintain continuity while also signaling that the royals are prepared to change, said Anna uh, Whitlock, a professor of history of modern monarchy at City University, London, but he faces a raft of questions. What place does a monarchy have in a multi-faith, multi-ethnic society? Whitlock asked, and is it the right rallying point for the nation? And should it be the monarch representing the UK abroad? What does it say about us? Is it a bastion of tradition that people should applaud, or is it actually a check on progress that actually doesn't represent the inclusive, diverse society that people would hope that Britain would now become? Well, see, here's the thing. The, there is a national government in Britain. It exists, right? You have a national culture, top-down culture, that is there from the monarchy. We don't have that in America. We never have. There is This discussion in Britain is much more important than it is in the United States. This question is easy to answer in the United States. We have Alabama being Alabama, and Massachusetts being Massachusetts, and California being California. And, and we should not make the United States California. We should not make the United States Massachusetts. We should not make the United States Alabama. 
Alabama should be Alabama, and Massachusetts should be Massachusetts, and California should be California. And we should almost have no notice of the central government. It shouldn't even be on our minds. We should be talking about our state governments all the time. All the time. But that's not how we work here. And this is because we look to things, other European states, as examples, and that's the wrong thing to do. And there's another more personal question lurking in the background. Is a 73-year-old white man the best person to confront those issues? I mean, this is just a stupid article in a lot of ways. It shows you where we are with journalism and with society. Um, but the, the piece continues, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because of time. Um, well, I guess I can, but we'll keep going with it. Charles waited longer than any other heir to take the throne and in many ways embodies the modernization of the monarchy. He was the first monarch not educated at home, the first to earn a university degree, and the first to grow up in the ever-intensifying glare of the media as uh, deference to royalty faded. He has been lauded as an early advocate of the environmental movement and won praise for working to imp improve the lives of young people in underprivileged communities. But he also has a reputation, perhaps undeserved, as a somewhat stuffy older man who was more at home on the polo field one of his country estates in the soccer-mad cities of modern Britain. Charles also alienated many people with his messy divorce from the much-loved Princess Diana and by straining the rules that bar royals from intervening in public affairs, wading into debates on issues such as environmental protection and architectural preservation. This is something, again, that's the structure of the monarchy. The prince and the queen or the king were not supposed to do these things, and he can't now. He, he can't. Again, this is where... This is a, an endorsement of a limited constitutional monarchy because he's not allowed to do that. Whereas the American president is allowed to do that, which can be troubling. This is why the presidency was not designed to be chief legislator. They had this in mind, right? The founding generation had this kind of structure in mind with the monarchy, with the American president, head of state, had some powers at the King of Britain. They're comparing it, of course, to George III, at that particular time, who was still alive, the presidency did not have the powers that even King George III had. In any way, this is what Hamilton argues in Federalist Number 69. And every, everybody that argued for the, for the presidency made the same arguments. I mean, Hamilton wasn't alone in this. And if you take my originalist papers class at McClanahan Academy, you find that out. But the fact is, um, the American presidency was not designed to be what it is today, and I'll talk about that tomorrow. As the UK mourned his mother, it quickly became clear that Charles was ready to be a more personal monarch. He has made a point of wading into the crowds of well-wishers, stopping to shake hands and exchange a few words, more like a US presidential candidate appealing for votes than a king who inherited the crown from a line of ancestors stretching back to 1066. One woman even kissed him, a level of familiarity no one would have dared with Elizabeth. At Monday's state funeral for the late queen, Bertram Leon embodied the challenges facing Charles, a proud Briton whose roots stretched back to Windbrush to the Windbrush generation of immigrants who came to the UK from the Caribbean after World War II, Leon was at Westminster Abbey to represent the St. Lucian community in honoring the Queen. Now he expects Charles to take the monarchy in a new direction. The King is actually going to change, perhaps modernize the monarchy in the image that, that he thinks in the current day, Leon said, his British Empire medal pinned to his chest. We can't live back in the 1920s, 30s, or 50s when Elizabeth took over. We're now in the 21st century, and I think there are going to be things are going to be regarded and looked at a little bit different. 
In addition to being king of the United Kingdom, Charles is head of state for 14 realms that retain the monarch as their sovereign after gaining independence from the former British Empire. It is these far-flung nations which stretch from Australia and New Zealand to the Caribbean that Charles must, may face his first challenges. The pressures were clear earlier this year when Prince William and his wife, Kate, faced calls for a royal apology and reparations for slavery during a trip to Belize, Jamaica, and the Bahamas to celebrate the Queen's 70 years on the throne. During that visit, Jamaican Prime Minister Andrew Holness told the royals that his country was moving on a few months after Barbados severed its ties with the monarchy. Again, this is the question of, of, uh, of slavery and reparations. And the response should have been, well, yeah, we ended it before any other uh, modern state. Now, you could argue that the French uh, may have done it earlier. But Napoleon certainly hung on to it, right? Uh, there was the Napoleon was not necessarily interested in getting rid of it entirely. You did see some uprisings and you know French colonies during the French Revolution um, in the Caribbean, and of course this led to the the Haiti massacre, um, which Americans were very aware of, which is why they were so concerned about slave insurrections in the United States. But the fact is, the British were ending it. And they ended it peacefully, and they did more than any other European power to try to stop the slave trade. So why should they owe anybody reparations? I mean, we know Jefferson indicted the king and the British for the trade, but the British were not moving into Africa to secure slaves themselves. They were trading with Africans for this labor force, and they thought it was needed and necessary in a commodity-driven world to have slaves. We know that we think that's wrong today. But in the 18th century, and 19th century, and 17th century, more of the 17th and 18th century, this was seen as essential. So why would anyone in the British Empire today apologize for it? They shouldn't. It's not something that we have now. It's been abolished, and there should be no discussion of reparations. The worlds have also faced criticism from within after Prince Harry and his wife Meghan gave up royal duties and moved to California. In a widely publicized interview with the U.S. television host Oprah Winfrey earlier this year, the couple alleged that Palace had been insensitive toward Meghan, who is biracial, and that a member of the royal family had asked about the color of their first child's skin before he was born. Charles sought to address the tension at home and abroad in his first address as king. Wherever you may live in the United Kingdom or on the realms and territories across the world, and whatever may be your background or beliefs, I shall endeavor to serve you with loyalty, respect, and love as I have throughout my life, he said. Charles also confronted concerns about how he would conduct himself as king. The laws and traditions that govern Britain's constitutional monarchy dictate that the sovereign must stay out of partisan politics. But Charles has spent much of his life, much of his adult life, I'm sorry, speaking out on issues that are important to him, particularly the environment. His words have caused friction with politicians and business leaders who accuse the then Prince of Wales of meddling in issues that, on which he should have remained silent. The question is whether Charles will follow his mother's example and muffle his personal opinions now that he is king, or use his new platform to reach a broader audience. He said this, my life will, of course, change as I take up my new responsibilities. It will no longer be possible for me to give so much of my time and energies to the charities and issues for which I care so deeply, but I know this important work will go on in the trusted hands of others. So he's saying he's going to stay out of it, right? He's going to stay out of it. He has to because of the system in place in Great Britain. Again, this is a ringing endorsement of a limited constitutional monarchy, but uh, we cannot have that here in the U.S. I go back to what I said at the beginning of this podcast. This is impossible here. Impossible. And the United States was not structured that way, nor should it be. We are Republicans with a lowercase r. 
not monarchists. And conservatives should be careful with this. They should still be Republicans with a lowercase r. They should be decentralist Republicans, because that is the real American conservative tradition. As far as the central authority, we often think of conservatism and, and the government, what that means for protecting traditions. and The tradition in America is that, protecting decentralization. That is the thing that conservatives should be most interested in protecting, not some type of European system that had no place in America. Even Washington himself was careful about this. Now, Washington shaded towards nationalism without question because he thought that a central, a, a central authority was necessary to preserve the independence of the United States from the British or the French. But he was by no means wanted to be a monarch. This is, that should be your guide right there. That Here's this old Virginia family that has money and a plantation and everything else you would think of, a, of an aristocracy. And Washington says, no, we're Republicans. This is what we should be doing not having some type of faux monarchy placed on the United States. I mean, heck, this is where John Adams ran into so much trouble. He was called a monarchist, and people were against him for it. Americans were not in favor of monarchy. And when Adams was called out for it, he started saying, well, you know, for example, Mercy Otis Warren, who wrote her history of the United States, essentially called John Adams a monarchist, so he said women shouldn't write history. But she was just echoing what other people were already saying. The beast continues, the king has been clear that he intends to slim down the monarchy, limiting the number of working royals and reducing the expense of supporting them. But for ten days, Britain spared no expenses and honored Elizabeth, who became a comforting symbol of stability over the tumultuous years of her long reign. All the spectacle that has become synonymous with the royals was on display as uniformed members of the royal family walked solemnly behind a gun carriage, carrying the queen's coffin away from Buckingham Palace. Cannons and church bells sounded in lament, and world leaders filled Westminster Abbey for her funeral. But it was pageantry with a purpose, celebrating the Queen's life while also reminding the public of the monarchy's role in the public life and linking the people to the royal family in their time of shared grief. People often criticize the British monarchy or even laugh at it. It's pomp and circumstance and emptiness, said historian Robert Lacey, author of Majesty Elizabeth II in the House of Windsor. Well, an occasion like this shows it's not emptiness, that the pomp and circumstance stands for something. And I, I do think that's true, right? But Again, here we have a situation where we have Americans shading towards this type of nationalism or monarchy or whatever they want to do that they think is, well, we got to look back to Europe and these, that's not America. American conservatism is not that. American conservatism is tied to the Federal Republican decentralization. If you want to preserve something in America, that would be the most instructive because within the states, if we don't have a meddling central authority, which is what we don't really need, you can have the states do essentially what they want. That would be the most important thing. And again, if you're a left-wing or right-wing, this is beautiful for you because your state can reflect your political culture and community. And we can look at, if you're in a conservative state, we can look at California and laugh. And if you're in California and you're a leftist, you can look at Alabama and laugh. But at the end of the day, the union was designed to protect all of them from being invaded as long as they had a Republican form of government. And as long as we kept it maintained a free trade zone, which is what they were, the, the intent was, well, this would be good, right? So, I think this this last week um, was interesting for all of these things, 
And um, I want to talk about that today and set up where I'm going to go with the presidency tomorrow. I'm going to talk about the presidency and how important what, what Joe Biden is actually doing for the presidency, which is beautiful. And of course, Donald Trump was operating on the same path and what we think about Trump now. Okay, so I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. 